are in a year-long Bible reading plan together as a church. If you have not jumped in on this plan, I encourage you to do so uh, pretty much every week with few exceptions. Last week was one of those when we talked about fatherhood. But most weeks we are going to be talking about something that took place in the previous week's scripture reading. Okay, And so today uh, actually covers a little bit of what you would have read this morning and uh, cover some stuff that we read a couple weeks ago as well. So we're putting some things together here. Uh, but most of the time it lines up pretty, pretty close to what we've read the previous week. And so I just want to take a moment here and pause and ask if you would to pray with me. Father God, we come to you today and ask that you would speak to us through your word. That we would feel both the conviction from your Holy Spirit and the comfort of your love for us shown to us through Jesus, which also comes to us by way of the Holy Spirit. Father, like David, we are imperfect. Some of our sins are not nearly as great as his, we might, be able, we might say. Yet every sin has the same power to separate us from you. And that is why your son Jesus is coming to the world. So help us to approach our own inner life where sin begins to take root with the full confidence that nothing we find buried deep down in our soul, no matter how dark, can keep us from you if we are in Christ. And that confidence may allow us to bring to the surface, to allow your spirit to shine its light, to disinfect the sin that, as your word says, so easily entangles us. That we might be free. That we might learn and grow and become the people you've called us to be. Even, Father, as most of us can testify, it often feels like two steps forward, one step back. But even in that, Father, you are making progress in our life. And for this we give thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, last we left it, King Saul, uh, I think, had not died yet. At this point, he has died. He died in battle. And you would think that right away, King David would just take over, right? Remember, King Saul had a great start to his kingdom. And everybody was all excited about his ability to lead military campaigns and conquer the enemy and gain ground. Uh, but pretty early on, after a good start, you begin to see some cracks in his leadership. You begin to see that he was far more concerned about his own name than God's name. You see that he's willing to put aside God's commands to do what he thought was best, and it got him into trouble. He feared man more than he feared God. It got him into trouble. And God saw this and said, well, this cannot be my king, and certainly his kids cannot sit on the throne. And so God raises up through the prophet Samuel a new king, King David. And King David, who Scripture tells us, is a man after God's own heart. And in the midst of King Saul's leadership, King David rose to be one of his best military leaders. When they were facing their arch enemy, the Philistines, then the giant came out. And this was common in the day where you would just say, instead of all of us going to war and killing each other, send out your best guy, we'll send out our best guy. Whoever wins, they're the ones that are going to conquer. And David, come, and David comes to camp and hears, as he's checking on his brothers at his father's command, comes to camp and he hears this Philistine just shouting out, you know, uh, obscenities about God's people and just send out somebody. And, 
and we will fight to the death. And, and David is incensed. He says, how can anybody go, go up, come up here and talk to God's people this way? How can, he, how can anybody violate God this way? Someone has to go out there. Someone should go out there and put him in his place under the mighty hand of God. And after some conversations, Saul sends him out. He conquers Goliath, chops off his head. Remember that part? It's the best part of the story. Don't ever leave that out when you're reading that story to your kids. You've got to leave that in there. Chops off his head, and he has a victory, right? Gains the victory for God's people. And pretty soon, everybody's chanting, you know, David's killed his thousands, or, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Doesn't exactly rhyme, not the best song in the world, but it, got, it caught on. And Saul becomes jealous of David and tries to kill David. And uh, David never puts his hands on Saul. He says, that is God's anointed. I will not put my hands on him. I will not take, take my vengeance. I will not kill him. Even though God has anointed me to be king over all of Israel, I'm not doing that. And so Saul eventually does die in the heat of battle. And you would think David would just slide right in to become the next king. But that's not exactly what happens. Israel's uh, leadership had, Saul, had Saul's son sit on the throne. And it took a while before, and we won't get into the story. If you read it, you know. And it took a little while. Uh, but David doesn't become king of all of Israel until some seven, eight years after the death of Saul. During that time, he does become king of a couple tribes of Israel in the southern part the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so he is king down there, but he's not king over all of Israel until much later on. But we read uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, that God gives this promise to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And we see this taking place in the very next chapter. We read, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So now David is king over all the land. He is the undisputed, unquestioned leader of Israel. He's celebrated, thought well of. And just as he gets to what you may call a spiritual high, something like what might happen at camp. This takes place. you got to go back a chapter to get the context of chapter 12 in 2 Samuel. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel begins like this. In the springtime, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. This is really where David's Great sins, because it's not just one, sins begin. David had a job to do as king. Scripture points that out. In the springtime, when kings go out to war, what David should have been doing was going out to war to protect God's people. And David does not do that. He stays home. Maybe you have heard uh, this phrase before. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. You heard that before? You know, that comes from a translation of Scripture out of Proverbs 16.27. The Living Bible 
translation says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle lips are his mouthpiece. David's hands become idle. What he should have been doing, he was not doing. And it got him into trouble. Instead of being off at war, he's on his rooftop. And what does he notice on his rooftop? He notices a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, taking a bath on the top of the rooftop. And, and he is enraptured by her. And because he's king, he feels like he can have whatever he wants. Because as we learned earlier, when they asked for, when Israel asked for a king, God says, look, you can take a king, but... The king's going to do whatever he wants. He's going to take from you more than you want to give. This is what kings do. And this is what David did. Doesn't make it right. But the power that David had as king corrupted his soul. He set aside what he should have been doing, did what he wanted to do. Letting his hands be idle by not going to war His eyes become very active. And he sees what he wants in Bathsheba and he he takes it. If you've heard this story before, you know what transpires. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with a child. David, uh, it doesn't tell us what David's thinking or feeling when he learns this. That this woman that he has slept with, who was married to uh, one of his soldiers, Uriah, doesn't tell us... (coughs) What David's thinking, but I would assume there's some amount of panic because he realizes he's got to fix this situation. It's going to look bad on him, on his kingship, if word gets out. So he has Bathsheba's husband come from the front lines home, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife and cover his tracks. But Uriah is a honorable man, unlike how David acted in this moment. And Uriah will not go into his house, will not sleep with his wife. He says, look, all my guys are out there fighting. How can I take such pleasure in going home and eating a meal and sleeping with my wife? I can't, I can't enjoy that pleasure when I know my guys are out there in battle. So he slept, slept at the foot of his door. And then King David realizes, well, that's not going to work. So he brings him in and says, well, let's, let's just take one more night off. Let's have a little party, a little get-together, and then tomorrow I'll send you back. And so he throws a bash and gets Uriah drunk. You see, this is why I say it's not a sin. It's sins. Multiple bad decisions that David is making. Sin Sin is never one bad decision. It's often several bad decisions. And now David is neck deep in bad decisions, and he has Uriah drunk, hoping that that will... You know, uh, lower his inhibitions and send him on home and everything will be fine. But again, Uriah is an honorable man, more honorable than David is in this moment. And he does not do that. Instead, he sleeps at the King David's palace. So, David knows he's got to do something here. He certainly can't just say, I blew it. I confess my sin. I want to make it right. He couldn't couldn't do that. So he says to the commander of the troops, look, you put Uriah on the front lines. And then when the battle is at its fiercest, 
call the withdrawal of the troops and leave him on those front lines so that he will be killed in battle. And that's exactly what happens. It's hard for us to imagine how David got here. He's the guy who killed Goliath. He's the guy that had so much integrity he would not lay a hand on Saul who was trying to kill him. Elsewhere, we read that when he got plunder from war, what did he do with it? He gave it over to God. Unlike Saul, who got plunder from war and gave it out to his men that they may be happy with him and not be angry with him. It seems like David is living up to that title, a man after God's own heart. He's making the right calls. He's making the right decisions. There's one decision that puts him on the track to making another bad decision and another bad decision and another bad decision that leads to the murder of an innocent man. Another bad decision. In the springtime when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David was not doing what he needed to do. It was the first bad decision that led to the next, that led to the next. Now, I've heard this said before, and it comes to mind every time I think of the story of David and Bathsheba. If you're busy doing the do's, you don't have time for the, you don't know this saying? How does it end? Say it out. You don't have time for the don'ts. If you're busy doing the things you should do, you won't have enough time to do the things you should not do. If David was busy doing what he should have been doing, leading God's people into battle in order to protect them, then he would not have ended up on that rooftop gazing at Bathsheba. And if he had made that mistake of lusting after her, if he would have stopped and and repented right there, then he would not have made the next mistake. And after the next mistake of sleeping with Bathsheba and finding out she was pregnant, if he would have stopped there and tried to make things right at that moment, but at each turn, instead of doing the do's, he did the don'ts. Instead of busying his life with pleasing God, he busied his life with pleasing himself. And he has deluded himself. He's self-deluded. I don't know how else to explain it. How does this man not realize what he's done? How does he not know he's made such terrible errors in judgment, to say the least? I mean, there were sins. How does he not see it? Sometimes we can think much of ourselves. We look down on others and think we're very high and mighty. We are in a perfect position to be the mighty who fall. And that's the position David found himself in. A mighty man, a warrior, a king, a man after God's own heart. How could anything I do be wrong? And so it takes, it takes uh, the prophet Nathan to help David see his great error. Nathan comes to David and we read the story. He tells this parable about a man who owns lots of animals, very wealthy, compared to a man who only owned one little ewe lamb. And when the wealthy man gets a visitor, instead of taking one of his own animals and, and, 
and butchering and cooking it for a meal for his guest. He takes the poor man's ewe lamb. Now, who's who in this situation? David becomes incensed at this idea and says, My goodness, this man should die. He should, he should have to pay this back over and again. Not realizing that this parable is about him. And Nathan hits him with the truth. You are this man. You are the one. Who took the ewe lamb, Bathsheba, out of the arms of who she rightfully belonged to. Or maybe Uriah is the sheep. Because the sheep is the one, or the ewe lamb is the one that eventually is slaughtered. But the point is clear. You're the one that's done this. This terrible, despicable thing. Now this is where David gets some credit. And it's hard to say that because you read the story and you just think, my goodness. But remember, remember one of David's problems was that he could delude himself in thinking he had done no wrong. I don't think it says that explicitly in the scriptures, but I think you can take from this that if it took Nathan telling this parable before he got it, then obviously he did not understand the depths of his sin prior to this moment when he encounters Nathan. So he hears from Nathan and he does something that I think is important. He sees the facts of the case and he repents. He confesses his sin, calls on the mercy of God. And that's recorded in not only here, but also in Psalm 51. Before we get to Psalm 51, we read in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He does not repeat the same mistake he made earlier, which was to say that he did not see his sin. Perhaps thought he was above that sin. Perhaps he thought he was better than other people, better than other kings. So he doesn't have to do what kings are supposed to do and go off to war. I want to point that out because we can see this story and say, I would never do that. Maybe some of those things that David did. But, you know, all of it, I wouldn't do all of that. My goodness, I mean. But the depths of our own depravity. Have you ever, have you ever had God just kind of peel back something in your soul? And you see how ugly it is? It's so easy to see. This is a silly example. But, you know, you get on, like, if you follow people on Facebook or on Twitter, and they like to brag about themselves. You just think, oh, my goodness. It's the worst is when they do that humble brag thing. Like, I'm so blessed to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, what, I know what you're doing, right? I know what you're doing. But I'll do that. And then God will say, hmm, wait a second. I thought, I thought you didn't like those people. Look in the mirror, fella. The point here is that if David, man after God's own heart, could delude himself into not realizing the depths of his depravity, that, that he could not have idle hands and not fall into the devil's work, if he could do that, you could do that. If he could do that, I could do that. So instead of judging David, I think it would be far better if we learned from David. 
Because there are some things to learn from him. Not only what not to do. That's obvious. But also what to do when you've done the thing you weren't supposed to do. What David does when he comes to the realization that he has sinned against God is he says it. He confesses it. I've sinned against God. Now that doesn't make it all okay. Nathan will tell David, listen, God forgives you. Following up on that first part of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, listen to this, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Now this is a biblical truth. Sin equals death. This is what Romans 6.23 tells us. For the wages of sin is death. David didn't know that New Testament scripture, but he knew Old Testament scripture. What was written up to that point. He knew what sin was. He knew the results of sin. And Nathan reassures him, you're not going to die. But because... By doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Not only that, but David is told that in verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. Meaning, David, as long as you're king, you're always going to have to be at battle. You will not know peace. The result of David's sins is both national and personal. Your sin and mine never just impacts us. It also impacts those around us. Now what does David do right? Turn to Psalm 51. It says at the very beginning of Psalm 51, before you get to verse 1, it has a subscript there and it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. What does David say? David in his lament, in his sorrow, in his heartache over his own sin, he writes this prayer or this song. Psalm 51. The first six verses is David crying out to God, confessing his sin, feeling the full weight of it. Towards the end in verse 16 and 17, he recognizes that what God is after is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So one of the first things we learn from David is when we blow it, not if, when, not if, when, right? We are not better than David. You will blow it, I will blow it. When we sin, not if, when we sin, David shows us a pattern here of what we need to do. Because as far as we can tell, David does not repeat this sin. So what David does, so that he would not repeat the sins that he had just sinned against God, is it begins with letting himself feel the full weight of that sin. If you're in the habit of brushing off sin, is no big deal. It is almost completely true that you will repeat it. If the sin God has convicted you of, you treat as small, it will most certainly be repeated. 
David doesn't do that. David cries out to God. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. No justification, no minimizing A full acknowledgement of sin is required if we are to grow. If we are to not repeat the sins of the past, we have to look at them in all of their ugliness and confess that to the Lord. Now, we don't confess it to the Lord hoping that if we are sorry enough, that somehow we'll get out from the consequences. David knew the consequences, they were sure. There's even a chance that he experienced some of these consequences before he ever wrote this song. When he asks for forgiveness, it's because he wants a right relationship with God. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness because you're afraid you're going to get in trouble? I mean, that's the only reason we ever tell our parents we did anything wrong. Because we know if we say it first, maybe it'll lessen the punishment, right? I'll even tell my kids that. If you tell me the truth, we'll cut that punishment down a little bit, you know. But that's not why David does it. It's not why David confesses his sin. It's because he wants a right relationship with God. He says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He knows God is able. To forgive. And he knows that God is good and is willing to forgive. So the first thing David does is he confesses his sin. The second thing he does is he asks for forgiveness. And the third thing he does is he says, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to change. I want things to be different. He says in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, I have sinned. Forgive me. Help me to be different. That's the pattern so far. Create a pure heart in me. Renew a steadfast spirit. Change me from the inside out, God. And then what does he do? He says, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to be better because of this. This failure will not get the last word on me. Verse 13 then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back from you. God, I'm going to use this and I'm going to help other people. I won't let my sin and my failure end with me. I'm going to use what you have taught me to teach others. I'm going to learn from this, God. Because I learned from this, David says, I'm going to worship. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and may my mouth declare your praise. And then he ends in verse 18. 
May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's looking beyond himself. He says, I know my sin has impacted my people. His kingdom, the center of his kingdom was Jerusalem. God has already told him, look, you're going to be at battle the rest of your life. The sword will never leave your, your, your kingdom. You're going to have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And he knows that, but he says, but I don't want this impact of my sin to weigh so heavily on others. He says, please prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, protect your people. He says, then, I will, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. He's thinking of others and burnt offerings offered whole. The bulls will be offered to your altar. Then, God, please accept us. Don't let my sin be our downfall. I think in doing this, David shows us something about sin. He shows us how serious it is, how destructive it is, but he also gives us the hope that if, that if we will do something similar to what he did, that if we won't minimize or deny, but own wholly our sin before God, if we will confess that sin to him, and if we will ask him to forgive us, not because we fear punishment, but because we know we have wounded God who loves us and we want to have a right relationship with him. If we are willing to do those things, if we're willing to, to be changed, I don't want to repeat the sin. I don't want to keep making those mistakes. God, help me to be different. And if we say, God, I'm not going to, if you do all this, I'm not going to let my past define me. I'm going to move forward and I'm going to allow what, what I did wrong and what I learned from that. I'm going to allow that. I'm going to, I'm going to make that a, a centerpiece of my life moving forward that I can bless other people. That you may use me to teach your transgress, transgressors your way. I think this is a good pattern for us in the midst of our sin. But I think we have something that is even more powerful than David had. We have a truth that gives us even more confidence to come to God and do these things. It's one of the things I love about camp is because it it allows students to get a break from normal life, to focus on God, to set aside distractions, and to think about Him. And often what happens in those times, these realizations start to pop up and you heard them. You heard what they had to share. I realized this. I realized that. These are the ways I need to change. These are the ways I need to grow. In those still small moments, when you hear the Lord's voice and either a Nathaniel comes into your life or it's through the sheer work of the Holy Spirit and the reading of God's word and the scriptures preached and you come under conviction and you know that there's sin in your life. Telling you, you have something more powerful that should pull you towards God than David did. David actually outright expresses one of his greatest fears. In verse 11 of Psalm 51, he says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, if you remember, that's what happened to Saul. Saul, his predecessor, was given the Holy Spirit. And when he sinned, when he failed, when when he did not express and do the things that we see happening in David's life, when he didn't do that, God removed the Holy Spirit off of Saul. David saw that. David did not want that. 
David is crying out in prayer, God, don't take your presence from me. Please, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Here's what you and, ha- you and I have a great promise that in Jesus, he never will. You find it in many places. John 10, 28, Jesus says to his disciples that those whom God has placed in his hand, no one will snatch them out. If you're in the hand of God, that means you have the Holy Spirit on you and in you. And Jesus says, no one, not even you, not even your sin. You can't even blow this. No one will take you out of God's hand. You are secure. We even talked about this in our Bible study this morning in small group. We read from Hebrews 13. And in verse 5, quoting out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now, how is that possible? Why would David fear that? Why would Saul go through that? And yet we can remain confident. Because those wages of sin that is death has actually been paid. Before Jesus, they had not been paid. For David, they had not been paid. The debt that was forgiven David was loan credit for what would be to come in Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may see in David, I hope, I hope you're willing to see in David something of yourself. That you, like me, like him, were sinners. We need God's grace. And I hope you'll see in Jesus you have God's grace. And you could not earn it. And because you could not earn it, you also cannot lose it. And because you cannot lose God's grace, guess what? You can come to him with the full confidence that you come to a father who will never cast you out. He knows you perfectly. Loves you completely. So you can do the things David did. You don't have to hold back when you share your sins with the Lord. He knows. Jesus chose to come into the world. The Father chose to send Jesus into the world when he knew about your sin. It wasn't like he was surprised. Like, okay, well, now we get off the cross and these guys are still sinning. What the heck? No, he knew. And he still came and he still died. Now, what does that tell you? You can tell him. You can confess your sin. Because under the blood of Jesus, it's already covered. For the wages of sin is death. Now, how do you pay that wage? Only by the sacrifice of the Son of God can the sins that you and I sin against an eternal God ever be paid. And he did that. So go to him with your sins. Confess them to him. Ask him to help you change. Be diligent in seeking ways in which you can take the things he has taught you in your failure so that you can be of benefit to others. Allow him to redeem your mistakes. And you know you can do that because your relationship with God is not in jeopardy. Now that's for the Christian. If you're not a Christian today, then those wages of sin that you have incurred, you have to pay for. That's what hell is all about. It's saying, Jesus, I don't care for you to pay for my sins. I'll take my life in my own hands. But you don't have to. Your sins can be forgiven, just like mine. 
I'm not forgiven because I'm a pastor. I'm not forgiven because I'm a good person. I'm not. I'm forgiven because of Jesus. You can have that too. If God can forgive David, he can forgive me, he can forgive you. Why would you think God can't forgive you? Are you a worse sinner than David? I doubt you're a worse sinner than me. Your sins can't be forgiven. Yes, they can. Don't believe the enemy's lies that somehow you are special. And your sins, amongst all the sins in the world, and all the sinners in the world, you're special. You can't be forgiven. Don't believe that for a second. God knows your sins. He sent Jesus to die for those sins that they might be forgiven. All you have to do is trust that he did that for you. To believe in him and say, I've blown it. I've sinned. But Jesus, I believe that your death covers those sins for me. And I want to live the rest of my life for you. If you say that with a heartfelt sincerity, then you're in the same position, even better than David. You know that you have a future eternity with God that from now on you can't mess up. Now, does that mean we get to sin as much as we want? No. It just means that the love of God now compels us to live for Him even more faithfully. And when we fail, the love of God calls us back to Him to confess, to receive forgiveness. To ask for help to change. To allow that changed heart to be a benefit to ourselves and others. So we come to God now in this time of invitation. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. After I say amen, I'm just going to go down front and you can come down front. And if you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you want to pray at the steps, you can do that. You can pray where you are. But if you're a Christian and sin has gripped your heart... I hope you hear the the good news of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, and God is revealing to you that yes, you like the rest of humanity is a sinner, but yes, you like the rest of us have the opportunity for forgiveness, that she would see the good news as well. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now thanking you for your word. Thank you for this story that even our heroes of the Bible, God, you tell the truth about them. Because in their life, in their failure, it's our story too. Because we are not unlike David. Father, for those of us who like to think sometimes we're better than, this story reminds us we're not. That the greatest king of Israel had an incredible failure. And yet, through your grace, was able to recover. God, that can be our story too. And I pray that it would be. For those who guilt and shame, sin, the condemnation that the enemy would have them to feel today, that you would just lift that off of them. God, you would just li- they would literally feel lighter as they leave this place knowing that, yes, they are forgiven. For those who may have come here this morning feeling the weight of sin and not not only being unsure of forgiveness, but being certain that they do not live up and they never will. That if there is a hell, and as Christians we believe there is, that they've earned it. 
God, that they might hear that all of that is true. And yet, and yet, your son Jesus is our ransom. You paid the price. That our eternity, our eternal destination can change. For those who have resisted that, they've tried to fix their relationship with you on their own. They, they, maybe they, they've thought, I can't go to church because, my goodness, the roof will cave in. What will other people think? They know I'm a sinner. They know my past. On and on those thoughts may go. Father, reassure them that just as a father loves his child, just as a mother loves their child, you love us. In fact, not just as, but more so. Because you're a perfect, loving, heavenly father. And you love them. I pray that they would know that. That Satan would not be able to convince them of anything short of the fact that you made them, you know their sins, and you choose to love us anyways. In all this, Father, I pray and trust your Holy Spirit's at work. I ask that you would help us to understand what obedience looks like in this moment, right now. What does it look like for us to take what you have shown us? And to respond in a way that would be pleasing to you and be beneficial to us and would help those around us. Help us to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.